Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to episode 20. Thank you for being here with me today. Uh, remember in episode 19 when I was like, you guys, I'm gonna like get my life together and we're gonna have regular episodes again. It's gonna be so great. The universe was like, all right, bet. And I got the worst cold I've ever had that then turned into bronchitis, which meant that I had no voice and also a horrible cough. But don't worry, I got a super sexy, very fun and very exciting inhaler and now I'm fine. My lungs are fine. Enough about me. Let's talk about today's case. The case that I'm talking about today happened 30 years ago in December, actually, but is still talked about a lot in the true crime world. On December 6th, 1991, police and firefighters were called to a fire at a frozen yogurt shop in Austin, Texas. As firefighters rushed in and began putting out the blaze, they were shocked to find the bodies of four teenage girls in the back room of the shop. In the 30 years since that night, there have been many different theories and suspects and even a conviction, but this case is still cold today. Before we take the deep dive into today's case, I want to talk to you for a moment about today's sponsor, HydroJug. My natural state, personally, is to have an iced coffee in one hand and a Diet Coke in the other, which is why I made a goal for myself a while back to start drinking more water. That's when I found HydroJug. The Hydro Jug is shatterproof and reusable and holds more than a half gallon of water. I fill it up in the morning and then carry it around all day until I reach my goal of finishing the whole thing. It has a built-in handle that makes it really easy to carry around and you can even get a reusable straw to go with it. I'll be honest, I'm a sucker for a cute accessory and the Hydro Jug is not only a great product, it's freaking cute, you guys. The Hydro Jug comes in multiple color options and you can get a neoprene sleeve that keeps your water cold and has an adjustable strap so you can carry your Hydro Jug hands-free. HydroJug comes out with new colors and patterns every month, and you can mix and match and put together over 40 combinations. I personally have a coral HydroJug with a leopard print sleeve and a black HydroJug with a black and white tie-dye sleeve, in case I want to have either colorful or something neutral. And I get compliments on it every time I carry it around. When you see people in public who also are carrying a HydroJug, you kind of have this moment where you are like, know that you're both in a secret fun club. It's very exciting. I've been a HydroJug fan for a while, and now you can get one for yourself or as a great gift for your bestie, your boo thing, or your mom this holiday season. Head to the link in the description of this episode and use code TAYLOR for 10% off. Make sure you spell that right. It's T-A-Y-L-E-R, Taylor with an E-R. Again, go to thehydrojug.com slash discount slash Taylor with an E-R and use code TAYLOR with an E-R for that sweet, sweet, super special discount. Thank you so much to Hydrojug for being a supporter of TGI Crime Day. Let's talk about today's case. As you guys are probably well aware, a lot of the time in true crime, the victims of the cases kind of get pushed to the back and all of the crazy details are the things that are talked about the most. And so I wanted to take a minute to tell you about these four beautiful, sweet girls who were the victims in the Yogurt Shop Murders case. As part of my research for this um, episode, I listened to the book Who Killed These Girls by Beverly Lowry. Great book. Highly recommend it. Um, in the book, she gives a really great in look into each of these girls and who they were before becoming known as the victims of this awful cold case. Each of them sounded like just the most adorable, sweet, kind girls that you would have wanted to be friends with in high school. 17-year-old Eliza Thomas had beautiful, thick brown hair and a stunning smile. 
She was the type of girl who had more lipsticks than she could ever need, but was also super outdoorsy and not afraid to get her hands dirty. She drove a VW Carmangia that she was absolutely obsessed with. All of her extra money went into fixing up her car. She was a great mechanic and she did all of the repairs herself. Go girl. Uh, the only thing she wanted for Christmas in 1991 were car parts. For her senior year of high school, Eliza transferred to Lanier High School to join their FFA, which is Future Farmers of America. For those of you who don't live in places with lots of farming, we have them in my hometown. FFA, what's up? Um, this is where students would learn how to take care of animals and agriculture and all of the things like that. Eliza loved animals and hoped to go to school to become a vet. Eliza met her best friend Jennifer through the FFA at her school. Jennifer Harbison was also 17 and was described as very athletic and active. She was on the varsity track team and the president of the FFA. She was outgoing and made friends easily. Like I said, Jennifer became friends with Eliza through FFA, and they both got jobs at the local frozen yogurt shop in Austin called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, which is the most 90s name I've ever heard. I love it. Jennifer and Eliza had a lot of the same interests and were really supportive of each other. Both of them had been nominated for the FFA Queen that year, and there was no kind of, like, yucky competition between them. They were both on the same page of, if one of us wins, that's a win for both of us. Jennifer also had an amazing relationship with her mom and her younger sister, Sarah, who was also part of FFA. The sisters were raising sheep as part of FFA that year and kept up really well on that responsibility. Sarah Harbison was a freshman at Lanier High School. Before this, she attended a girls-only Catholic school, so she was super excited to go to public school and have the experience of making new friends. I think also probably excited to be able to hang out with boys because she didn't get to do that at her old high school. Um, she was enthusiastic and very friendly. She was extremely athletic and played on the volleyball and basketball teams, and she fit in great with the FFA members. In December of 1991, Sarah had just started dating a new boy that she really, really liked, and he gave her his class ring that she wore all the time, which is the sweetest thing I've ever heard. I love high school love. Um, Sarah met her best friend, Amy, through FFA. Amy Ayers was just 13 when she became a junior member of the FFA at Lanier High School. She was a bit younger than the other members, but she worked really hard and everybody loved her. Amy loved riding horses and was raised on a ranch. Her dad described her as being all cowgirl. She loved animals, and she wanted to be a vet when she grew up. She was so excited to start high school because she would finally be going to school with her best friend, Amy. They didn't get to see each other a lot outside of FFA because they were both really busy. Um, they had both had a ton of extracurricular activities, especially with, like, taking care of their animals and all of those kinds of things, which I love that they did that. All four of these girls were so sweet and so kind. They all loved country music and animals. They were all good girls who worked really hard and were on the path to such bright futures. Going through this case, I felt like I really got to know these girls, as weird as that maybe sounds. I wish that this story just ended here, that these four sweet, beautiful, promising girls just went on to be amazing and do amazing things, but obviously we know that's not what happened. I just wanted to take a minute to talk about these girls as girls and not as victims. Um, so just send some good feelings into the universe for their family and loved ones. On December 6th, 1991, Jennifer and Eliza were scheduled to work the closing shift at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. Uh, remember that Jennifer is Sarah's older sister. Sarah was going to have a sleepover that night with her best friend, Amy, and it was decided that Jennifer would, would drive Sarah and Amy to the local mall that was close by the Hillside Strip Mall where I Can't Believe It's Yogurt is located, was located. Sarah and Amy planned to hang out at the mall until it closed, and then Jennifer would pick them up on her break and take them back to the yogurt shop. Everything went according to plan. The girls hung out at the mall chatted with a few friends from school who were out Christmas shopping with their parents, and then Jennifer picked them up and took them to the yogurt shop. 
Sarah and Amy picked up a pizza from a pizza place near I Can't Believe It's Yogurt and settled into a booth to hang out while Jennifer finished her shift. While Jennifer and Eliza were working, um, it was a Friday night, so the yogurt shop was busy, and there was a, quite a few regulars who came in that evening. Around 8.30 p.m., a regular named Lu- Lucella Jones, sorry, I keep wanting to say Louisa, Lucella Jones, went into the shop and she remembers seeing two vehicles in the parking lot, later determined to be Jennifer and Eliza's car. However, there were a couple of kids sitting at a table in the shop. Lucella described them as, quote, hippie-looking, around 14 to 16 years old. They weren't drinking or eating anything. They were just sitting at a table close to the door, kind of acting weird. They had a duffel bag on the table that they were going through, and she said the contents kind of rattled around when they moved it. Lucella almost asked the girls if they were okay, but decided against it because Eliza and Jennifer seemed perfectly normal and chatty. She decided these guys were probably just weird kids being weird, so she got her frozen yogurt and left. At 9.30 p.m., Eliza's mom stopped by to say hi to the girls, and she didn't really notice anything suspicious. Uh, The girls were fine, the shop was a little busy, and she stayed to talk to them for a bit. While she was there, a man named Daryl Croft stopped to pick up some froyo on his way home from dinner with friends. Daryl knew Eliza and her mom because they went to the same gym. Daryl was a retired military officer, a retired military police officer, and owned a private security company. Daryl noticed a young man who was waiting in line who kept letting other customers go ahead of him instead of ordering. Daryl thought that he looked like he was in his early 20s. He was about 5'10 to 6 feet tall. This young man was wearing a green military-style jacket that looked like it could have been from a military surplus store. When Daryl walked up to get in line, the guy was kind of being sketchy. He was looking out the window at Daryl's car, which had lights on the top uh, for his security company. This young man asked Daryl if he was a cop, which I feel like is weird. Like, sir, this isn't, I can't believe it's yogurt, not an underground poker game. Anyway, Daryl was like, uh, no. And the young man tried to tell him to go ahead of him in line, like he had with other customers. Daryl said no, so the young man reluctantly went up to the counter, and all he ordered was a can of soda. Again, kind of weird because he was in a yogurt shop and stood there looking at the menu for so long and then went up and just ordered a can of soda. After he ordered his soda, Daryl watched this young man walk to the back room, which was an employee-only area. Daryl felt like this was a strange interaction. We love Daryl for being so on top of it. He asked Eliza what the deal was with this guy going to the back room, and Eliza said that he asked to use the bathroom, which wasn't normally allowed, but he said it was an emergency. Which, again, weird, because you waited in line forever, stalling, until you finally went up there and now suddenly your bladder's going to explode. Anyway, Daryl still felt a little weird about this, but decided that the girls didn't seem concerned, so he just let it go and left. Around 10 p.m., another regular couple came in and talked to the girls for a bit. They didn't really notice anything suspicious. At this time, the stores in the strip mall were starting to close. Most of them closed around 10 p.m., but I can't believe it's yogurt was the last to close at 11 p.m. I was talking to my mom about this the other day. Shout out. Hi, mom. Uh, We were talking about this the other day. And it just makes my stomach turn thinking about these teenagers being in charge of closing up, like at 11 o'clock alone, like that's normal. And I know that's normal, and plenty of places are still like this, but I was thinking about one of my best friends in high school worked at a local burger place. Hi, Paces. What's up? (laughs) Anybody who's local to Utah? Um, And she was like a manager when we were 17. And at the time, I felt like we were just such grownups, and it was normal for my 17-year-old to be in, to my 17-year-old friend to be in charge of a restaurant with a bunch of other teens. But this case, and also the fact that, you know, I'm completely paranoid, has made me look at that situation so different. To be honest, even as an adult, I hated closing shifts when I worked retail. It's just spooky to have to walk out to your cars once everything else is closed down and it's all dark 
again, <laughs> because I'm a paranoid weirdo, because all I do is investigate horrific crimes. I know you know what I mean because you're listening to this podcast. Okay, back to 1991. The other stores are closing, and Jennifer and Eliza are starting on their closing work, but the shop is still technically open. At 1045, one last couple came into the shop. Their names were Tim and Margaret, and they said that the girls were working on closing things down, so they got their yogurt to go so that they wouldn't take up their time. They saw two customers still in the shop sitting in a booth closest to the register. They described these customers as two large men wearing black hoodies. They didn't get a look, good look at their faces because they had their hoods up, which makes me uncomfortable. Uh, they also weren't eating anything. Again, uncomfortable. They were just sitting in this booth, leaning across it, talking quietly to each other. Just like everyone else this evening, this couple said that the girls seemed completely fine and didn't give any red flags for them to think that these men were making them feel uncomfortable or giving them issues. So this couple left, and now these two men, Sarah, Amy, and Jennifer, and Eliza, were the only ones left in the shop. Around midnight, an officer on patrol noticed smoke coming from the Hillside Strip Mall. When he got closer, he could see that it was coming from the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop, and this officer assumed it was probably a kitchen fire, so he called for the fire department to come. When the fire department got there, the front door was locked, so they had to break the door down. Um, the shop was filled with thick black smoke that was coming from the back room. The firemen made it to the back of the shop and began to put out the blaze. As the flames went down, they were completely shocked to see what the smoke had been hiding. They immediately called for backup. When the police arrived, the shop was still smoky. There were puddles throughout the store that were now making it very steamy and hard to see. The homicide detective on duty was Sergeant John Wilson Jones, who said that in his 21 years as a detective, he had never run into a scene like this. Around this time in the late 80s, early 90s, Austin was still mostly a farming town. They didn't have a lot of crime. In fact, by pure coincidence, Sergeant Jones had a reporter and a camera crew with him that evening, and the reporter was complaining that there was nothing going on, and was already looking forward to the next night when they would be going on a ride-along in Austin, or in um, Dallas, where they would be getting a good story, because the media is gross. What a horrible way to look at things, that, like, to be, like, disappointed that there's not horrible crimes happening. Anyways, <laughs> um... So, Sergeant Jones did something amazing that I appreciate so much. He knew what he was seeing was way above his qualifications, so he called in multiple different agencies to help process the crime scene. Uh, and I'm just going to call it what it is, an absolute disaster from day one. There were for sure people who were trying their best here, who were doing amazing work, who were going above and beyond and doing the things that we all hope detectives and officers are going to do in this situation. But there were also some people who let their egos get in the way of this investigation. There were a lot of mistakes made, a lot of which were probably mostly lack of experience, so I'm not trying to drag anybody when I say that, but you'll see as we get into it, there are some mistakes that simply shouldn't have happened. But before I get ahead of myself, sorry, let's talk about this crime scene. In the entrance to the employee area, they found the body of Amy Ayers. In the back storage area, they found Jennifer, Eliza, and Sarah. Based on what they found at the scene, it's assumed that each of the girls had been forced to undress. Their clothes were in neat piles around the back room. Sarah had taken off her boyfriend's class ring and a Mickey Mouse watch, which is a detail that for some reason wrecks me every time. Uh, these were, these girls were so young. They were babies. Like a girl wearing a Mickey Mouse watch and someone did this to them. I just, it makes me sick. It bothers me so much. Um, all of the girls' clothing was there, aside from a large belt buckle and a bomber jacket that Amy had been wearing. Neither of these items had been, have ever been found. Um, a few items of their own clothing were used to bound and gag each girl. Each of the girls had been shot execution style with a 22 caliber, caliber pistol. 
Eliza's body was found on top of Sarah and Jennifer was a few feet away and it's speculated that the girls had basically been stacked, piled on top of each other and Jennifer's body had possibly been moved due to the high-powered fire hoses. It's also speculated that Amy had dragged herself out of the back room but was shot a second time, this time with a 38 caliber pistol, which quickly led detectives to believe that there was more than one person involved in this. It was later theorized that the fire was started by styrofoam cups full of lighter fluid. I read that styrofoam is so incredibly flammable that when it's on fire, it melts into an almost tar-like substance, which can cause things around it to melt because of the intense heat. This fire burned so quickly and so hot that the girls' bodies began to melt and were completely unrecognizable. Um, I'm not going to go into great detail. You can find it online or in the book, uh, but it was found that the girls had been sexually assaulted and at least two of them had been raped. The CSI team did take swabs for DNA, but DNA testing was still very new at this point, and uh, unfortunately, there just wasn't enough DNA to complete a full strand. So early on in the case, uh, the DNA didn't provide a ton of information. Let's take a look at the rest of the crime scene. It was found that there had been a no-sale on the register at 11.03 p.m., which basically just means that the register was opened without a transaction happening, and $540 was missing from the register, but there was a safe and also a bank bag that weren't touched. As part of the girls' closing duties, they would put the chairs on the table, on the tables including one chair at the end of each booth so that they could mop. Um, they'd take apart the yogurt machine to clean it, refill napkin holders, and take out the trash. Uh, when they got to the scene, they saw that there was one table that did not have the chairs put up on it, the booth closest to the register. Um, and then also the yogurt machine had been taken apart as if they'd started cleaning it and then had been interrupted. <clears throat> uh, part of this closing routine was to lock the door from the inside with a key around 1045. They did this so that people already in the shop could finish up their yogurt. Um, and then one of the closers would just unlock the door so the customers could leave, but no new customers could come in. As I mentioned, this front door was locked from the inside when the, pi the fire department arrived. They found that the door in the back room of the shop was unlocked, which is where they assume the attackers left from. Like I mentioned before, the Austin PD didn't have the experience or the manpower to handle this case on their own. They didn't even have a forensic unit at this time. So this meant that they would need a CSI technician, an arson investigator, and a medical examiner from different areas to come in and help process this situation. It's really unfortunate because it really seems like the lead detective, John Jones, really tried to do his best and to call in the correct people, but with so many people involved, there are bound to be issues, like too many hands in the pie. You know what I mean? First of all, the CSI lab tech, Emma, Irma Rios, who came to the scene, wasn't super experienced either. She had only processed one other arson scene before this. She took fingerprints from the register and the front desk area, but not the bath back room, bathrooms, or table. The garbage cans weren't checked and they ended up just being thrown out. There were several items from the scene that just disappeared and never showed up again, including some metal shelves in the back room where they believed the fire had been set. Which leads me to the arson investigator, Melvin Stahl. Melvin determined that the fire had been started on those metal shelves in the back room and then spread up the walls to the ceiling and out toward the front of the shop. According to my investigoogling, normally in a homicide involving arson, the bodies should be checked for some kind of accelerant. Um, this can be a very important piece of information later when they're interviewing suspects, but the bodies of Sarah, Amy, Jessica, and Eliza were not checked for accelerant. Generally, with homicide investigations, 
DNA and evidence collection from the bodies is performed at the scene of the crime. This is super insanely important because if the bodies are put into body bags and moved, there is trace evidence that can be ruined or added to the bodies. For example, if DNA rubs off of the bodies onto a body bag or vice versa, that can completely compromise the important evidence. This makes sense to me, someone with zero knowledge of crime scenes in real life, but for some reason, the medical examiner on duty, Les Carpenter, was all huffy about each of the bodies staying at the scene. The lead medical examiner was out of town, so this other tech, Les Carpenter, was the one in charge of processing the girls' bodies. While the forensics team was trying to do their job, Les paced about complaining that he needed to move their bodies to the Emmy's office for an autopsy. He butted heads with the officers on duty and, in my opinion, let his ego just get in the way this entire time. His attitude toward the Austin PD um, kind of rubbed off on the autopsy tech who later performed this autopsy. It's speculated that Les Carpenter badmouthed the investigators, which caused the autopsy tech to do less than an amazing job. Uh, there were things that were done far too quickly and, in my opinion, a little sloppily, and it makes me insane when stuff like this happens because... In these, like, in these cases, hello, it's not about your ego and who's in charge of who. This is about solving the murder of four innocent girls. So do your damn job and quit it with the dick measuring contest. Anyway, at first, there were no obvious suspects, which made the whole situation even more terrifying. This was an event that changed Austin completely. Kids were no longer allowed to go out after dark. Gun sales and home security systems went way up. Nothing like this had ever happened in this town, and parents were terrified that this could happen to their own teens. In the days following the murders, people took flowers and teddy bears and signs to put outside of the yogurt shop, and over 1,500 people attended the memorial for the girls, and the hunt for suspects was on. As you can imagine, the media was absolutely feral over this story. It was nothing but salacious headlines and crazy accusations, so to make sure that the investigation could be handled with as much control as possible, there were certain pieces of information that were sealed in police files. This happens a lot in cases because, like I talked about earlier, this um, can help identify actual suspects versus false confessions and bogus tips that are called in, which unfortunately happens a lot, especially in this case. There were three, I mean 13, <laughs> three plus 10, 13 key pieces of info that were not made public. Number one, how and where the fire was started. Number two, that the key to the shop was left in the front door. Number three, the amount of money stolen from the till. Number four, how the bodies were arranged. Number five, the items used to bind the girls. Number six, the fact that the shop's um, office was never opened. Number seven, that there was a key to the office hidden under the cash register. Number eight, the caliber of the weapons used. Number nine, the underwear from two of the victims was missing. Number 10, that Amy's bomber jacket and belt buckle were missing. Number 11, that Amy had a bruise under her chin from being hit with something. Number 12, the fact that Amy had been strangled and what item was used to strangle her. Number 13, that Amy had been shot with two different weapons. These were all very important pieces of information that could help police identify suspects and should have been kept within the police force. However, someone who was part of this investigation leaked some of the information like a dum-dum and the Austin PD received thousands of tips and many, many false confessions that included this information that should have not been in the public eye. They would look at this person as a viable lead, and then when they realized that there was things being said by multiple people who really shouldn't know the certain things they were saying, uh, they realized that there had definitely been a leak. Someone had released information when they shouldn't have. Um, since they weren't getting any leads from the tips being called in, the detectives did the only logical thing, <laughs> which, of course, they spun out into satanic panic. 
That was, of course, sarcasm. That was a ridiculous idea. Basically, the cops decided to go round up all of the, like, punk rock kids and anyone who listened to hard rock and wore black. I could honestly do a whole episode about the ridiculousness that was the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s because it's absolutely wild. Um, but dozens of people were taken in for questioning, with cops bursting into their houses in the middle of the night or taking them out of classes unannounced simply because they weren't, like, the mainstream people of Austin. They liked punk rock. They wore black. That's literally it. Of course, as they do... The media took this idea and ran with it, leaning hard into the idea that it was all to do with the Satanists. Essentially, nothing came of this, and it was a lot of waste of time and energy. So, now that they couldn't blame the punk rock, black-wearing, guitar-playing people of Austin, it was back to the drawing board. Eventually, months turned to years, and there was still so much pressure for the police to get this case solved. There were over 50 false confessions made, and at least 800 suspects heavily investigated. Like I mentioned before, there were a lot of people involved in this case, some who were doing their best and others who were just getting in the way. John Jones and Mike Huckabee were the detectives put in charge of this case um, with he Sergeant Hector Polanco as the supervisor. Mike and John had been friends for years and worked really well together. They each took on very specific tasks in this investigation. John and Mike both had children around the same age as the four victims, and this case, this case hit them both really hard. Uh, together, they made a pact that they would do this investigation right. They knew that prosecuting a suspect in this case was going to be really difficult. And they agreed that they would make sure that they had a pile of evidence and a clear case before trying to arrest anyone. A very solid plan that was, unfortunately, railroaded by their supervisor, Hector Polanco. There were multiple times that a suspect was brought in and questioned by Hector Polanco, and he would come out of the interrogation room proud as a peacock and tell Detective Huckabee that the suspect was ready to give a full confession. Detective Huckabee would go into the room, the suspect would give him a confession, but the information he was getting didn't actually match up with the facts of the crime. Eventually, they figured out that it was because Detective Polanco was drawing confessions out of these people and feeding them the information just to get a confession, which I know a lot of people want to believe doesn't actually happen, that cops don't coerce confessions, but grow up, it happens. Not a lot, but a million times more than it should. Honestly, I feel like I could do a whole episode about the shenanigans of Hector Polanco, but I'll just give you a quick rundown. Detective Polanco was responsible for many false confessions in his career. One of the most notable was the wrongful conviction of a man named Christopher Ochoa, who falsely confessed to a murder in 1988 after two separate 12-hour interrogation sessions with Hector Polanco, who was known around town as the Boogeyman, because he would put away so many people. Christopher knew absolutely nothing about the murder that he was being interrogated for, but Polanco kept screaming in his face that he knew what he did, that he was going to make sure he got the death penalty. When Christopher asked for a lawyer, Polanco's partner told him he wasn't allowed to have one until he'd been officially convicted, which is a lie, but Christopher didn't know any better. So this interrogation, if you can even call it that, continued. For hours, Polanco told Christopher over and over that he was going to be sentenced to death if he didn't admit what he knew. He forced Christopher to look at the autopsy photos of the victim and tried to convince him that he was blocking it out of his memory and just couldn't remember committing the crime. Christopher felt like he was going insane. All he wanted was to get out of that room away from this crazy person who was screaming in his face. The final blow came when Polanco told Christopher that his friend, who was also being looked at as a suspect, had pointed the finger at Christopher. He told Christopher that um, Richard, his friend, was basically taking a plea deal and was going to make sure that Christopher got the death penalty. Finally, when he was exhausted, terrified, and just wanting to get out of this room, he agreed to sign a confession. Polanco typed it up, and Christopher, thinking that he would be able to get out of there, knowing that he was innocent, would talk to a lawyer, they would work it out, it would be fine. However, that didn't happen. 
He was arrested and charged with the murder. He was sentenced to life in prison and spent 12 years behind bars for something he didn't do. He was released and acquitted in 2002 when another inmate confessed to committing the crime and DNA proved it. This poor man ended up in prison with no prior arrests, no record, for a crime that he had nothing to do with, all because the boogeyman himself wanted a confession more than he wanted to catch a correct suspect. In my opinion, allegedly. No one sue me. So, with that being said, Detective Huckabee and Detective Jones were like, this piece of crap is completely ruining this investigation. We are getting fake tips and false confessions because this guy is a complete dick. So finally, Detective Polanco's reign of terror came to an end when he was taken off this case and demoted from detective. Probably should have been fired in my opinion, but I'll take what I can get. I wanted to include that little story because it sets the scene for the kind of BS tactics that were happening at the Austin PD, because there will be more of that in a moment. Eventually, the case went cold and there was no movement for a few years. In 1996, Detective Paul Johnson and Detective J.W. Thompson took over the case. As they looked into the cold case, they felt an increased amount of public pressure to get these murders solved. Detective Johnson started looking into the case file and saw that there had been a previous arrest that he felt really needed to be looked into more. Not long after the murders, a 16-year-old named Maurice Pierce was seen with a 22 caliber handgun, the same type that had been used in the murders of Jennifer, Sarah, Amy, and Eliza. Maurice was a bit of a troublemaker with some petty crimes under his belt, things like stealing a radio, hopping a fence into private property, and other trespassing incidents. He wasn't a horrible kid, but he definitely wasn't squeaky clean. After being interviewed by our guy Hector Polanco, you can't see me, but I've got my eyes open really wide to make a point, he confessed to the yogurt shop murders. The problem was that Maurice said that he thought his friend, Forrest, had borrowed his gun and used it at the yogurt shop. Maurice... <coughs> Sorry, you guys, seriously, bronchitis. Please let me go use my inhaler. One, Please hold, please hold. Oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> shout out to my asthma babes. All the hottest people have inhalers. And shout out to my hydro jug for being here for me to wet my whistle when I keep coughing. And also shout out to John Mudge, the inventor of the inhaler. <laughs> We're going to get through this episode. We're going to be fine. Okay, so Maurice agreed to wear a wire and get a taped confession from Forrest Wellburn. Forrest Wellburn was only 15 at the time. He was described as an alright kid who was great at playing the stand-up bass in the school band, but didn't have a lot of drive when it came to schoolwork. He goofed off in class and skipped so much school that eventually he had to repeat the ninth grade. Forrest spent a lot of time alone and didn't have a ton of friends. Unfortunately, when Maurice started to show interest in him, Forrest followed him without question. So, Maurice agreed to wear this wire. He started talking to Forrest and trying to get him to confess. And Forrest finally was like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, there were police officers who were listening to this conversation as it turned to these two boys basically freaking out and panicking and worried that they were going to get in trouble and get blamed for something that they didn't do. Hector Polanco may have been pulling confessions out of his magic hat, but luckily, Detective Jones and Detective Huckabee were like, this is insane. These kids have no idea what's going on. Along with pointing the finger at Forrest Welburn, Maurice implicated two other friends. Robert Springsteen Jr. was 17 years old. Robert was also a kid who struggled through school. He hardly showed up, and when he did, he had a bad attitude and terrible grades. One of the teachers at Robert's high school said that he was very immature and was always acting goofy in class. Robert was a great artist, but was never given the opportunity to work on that talent because he was sent to an alternative high school with no art program after being kicked out of his public high school. He fought a lot at school and at home with his stepdad, so eventually he moved to Austin to live with his biological dad and start going to school there. 
bummer that he tried to get a fresh start at a different school, but immediately he was back on his same bad habits. Eventually, he dropped out of school, and he and his friend, 17-year-old Michael Scott, uh, moved into a condo together. Michael Scott was born in Micronesia. He and his mom and stepdad moved to Austin in 1980. Eventually, Michael's mom and stepdad got divorced, but his dad, his stepdad, uh, was in his life a lot. He was the only dad that he'd ever known, and he took him on a lot of different camping trips and hikes that helped Michael find a love for the outdoors. He loved to read, but he had a learning disorder that made him made it hard for him to really perform well in school. Overall, he was a pretty good kid. Uh, his parents were doing his best to set him up for success. Sadly, this is one of those situations where a kid who is easily persuaded and trusting ended up falling in with kids who just weren't the best influences. When Michael started hanging out with Robert Springsteen, he stopped going to school and um, they just kind of got into a lot of trouble. They were doing a lot of drugs. They were drinking a lot of beer. Uh, when they were questioned about their alibis for the night of the Ogre Shop murders, all four of the boys had slightly different stories. All of them involved the fact that, again, they were smoking a ton of weed <laughs> and drinking a lot of beer, wandering around the mall, sneaking into a movie, and, of course, waiting in the parking lot to watch the girls who worked at Hooters walk in. Like a bunch of weird teenage idiots. Uh, that weekend, they also stole a Pathfinder from a nearby dealership, took it for a joyride, and then took it back to the dealership. So, clearly, I just described four kids who are the complete opposite of Sarah, Amy, Eliza, and Jennifer. The media also noticed this and took off running with it, as the media does. They loved this story of four, quote, bad boys killing four, quote, good girls. This didn't last long in 1991, 1992-ish, uh, because Forrest took and passed a polygraph test, and there was no physical evidence linking the boys to the crime. The bullets were tested against Maurice's gun, and it was not a match. Were these kids great? No, definitely not. They were troublemakers. Were they murderers? It didn't look like it. The Austin PD all agreed that these kids were delinquents, but not likely murderers. However, like I mentioned, in 1996, there were new detectives in charge, and they disagreed. Not long after the accusations were cleared, the boys lost touch and weren't really friends anymore. Robert moved back to West Virginia to live with his mom. Maurice married his high school sweetheart and moved with their daughter to Louisville. Forrest was working as a mechanic in Lockhart, Texas, and Michael moved around a bit, working odd jobs here and there. In 1997, Detective Johnson interviewed each of the young men who were all cooperative and upheld their stories that they weren't involved. Again, the case was moved to a cold case, but Detective Johnson could not let this go. He did everything he could to make the evidence match his idea that the boys were guilty. In my opinion, he wanted the case solved, and he was ready to do anything it took to get someone behind bars, even if it was the wrong person. In 1999, Detective Johnson asked Maurice Pierce to talk to them again, and he was actually put to sleep by a hypnotist. Um, he agreed to do this, and surprise, surprise, nothing new came out of his mouth, but that didn't stop it. In September of 1999, another task force was put together in this case. At, first, the, at the first meeting for the new task force, Detective Johnson presented a slideshow that he made detailing how they were going to get Maurice Pierce for this crime. Seriously, like a dog with a freaking bone. And just remember that since 1991, there was no evidence linking Maurice to this crime. There was no physical evidence. There was no circumstantial evidence. They only had a signed confession that was given to good old Hector Polanco, who had again been demoted for forcing confessions out of people. But still, Detective Johnson was on the hunt for Maurice and his three buddies. Michael Scott was brought in for questioning eight years after the murders took place. Michael told officers that he had a terrible memory, especially after so long. At one point, Michael said that if he knew anything about the murders or what happened that day, he would tell the police because he thought what happened to the four girls was awful. Then a switch was flipped. 
Uh, one of the detectives who was brought onto the task force, Ron Laura, basically told Michael that they knew a lot more than he was letting on and told him that they knew he was there that night. After some more threats of, I know what you did, and getting nowhere because Michael had nothing to confess, they asked him if he would take a polygraph. Michael said yes, then a polygraph tech was brought in, set up the machine, and chatted with Michael for a few minutes, but then didn't officially conduct the test. Just some speculation on my end, probably because they knew that if he took a polygraph test, he would pass it, and then how would they be able to get a confession out of him if he was telling the truth about not knowing anything? Anyways, moving on, I'll let you decide on why that was on your own. After a few hours, Michael was asked how much money was stolen from the cash register, because remember, that was info that was kept out of the public eye, and he said, he guessed, really, um, 12 or $14. Uh, luckily, Detective Ron Laura was there to help him remember how much was really stolen. Remember it. By planting it in his head and making Michael think it was his own idea, allegedly. For hours, Michael told them story after story where they would ask him very specific questions um, that he just had to agree to until his, quote, memories fit their narrative. It started off slow, uh, but then it was ramped way up when eventually, after 20 hours of interrogation, one of the detectives was grilling him and yelling that Michael knew he'd been there and that he'd shot one of these girls. Over and over and over, he says to him, you used this gun, showing him the gun from evidence, you used this gun to shoot those girls, didn't you? And then on camera, Detective Johnson walked behind Michael with a gun in his hand, held it to the back of his head and yelled, this is what you did, isn't it? By the way, later this officer tried to say that he didn't hold the gun to his head, which we all know is a lie because it's on tape, but okay. Probably because a man literally had a gun to his head, Michael broke down and said yes, that he had shot the girls, that he was there, and then he implicated everyone else that they were saying was involved. The day after this confession, Michael came back to the police and told them that he felt like he had lied to them yesterday, and he was doubting his memories of what he told the police he had done to the girls because he didn't do any of it. Um, he had been pushed into agreeing to things that the police were feeding him, and he was literally questioning his own reality. Now that they officially had a confession from Michael, the Austin PD went on to arrest Maurice Pierce, Forrest Wellburn, and Robert Springsteen. Once the four of them had been indicted and put in jail, or I mean put in front of a grand jury to decide if the case should go to trial, Forrest was released because of a lack of evidence. There was nothing concrete to tie him to these murders, so he was let go before there was even a trial. Maurice Pierce sat in jail for four years before being released in 2003, again, for lack of evidence. And again, if you're trying to say that allegedly Maurice's gun was the one used to commit the murders, even though a decade before they had proved through ballistic testing that it wasn't his gun was used, then how in the world can you release Maurice but keep everyone else in jail? Robert and Michael were still in jail, and Maurice's case never went to trial. After the charges were dismissed against Maurice, the police still had their eyes on him. According to his family, Maurice felt like the APD was out to get him, and he even suspected that they were following him. In 2010, Maurice was pulled over for a traffic violation. It's unclear what exactly happened, but Maurice eventually jumped out of his car and began to run away. There was an officer that followed in his car and another officer that ran after him on foot. According to the officer who was on foot, there was a struggle and Maurice grabbed a knife from the officer's belt, while the officer was on top of him, and this led to the officer shooting and killing Maurice in what was ruled self-defense. After this incident, Maurice's family heard very little from the APD about what exactly happened that day or how he ended up in this situation. When they were contacted after Maurice was killed, all the police wanted to talk about was what happened in the yogurt shop case and Maurice's connection to it. 
And I'll be honest, I have a hard time knowing how to process that information and what happened with the police and all of that. So we're just going to leave it at that. His family never really heard what happened that day and they were just questioned more about the case that he'd already been acquitted in. But okay. Robert Springsteen <clears throat> was convicted of the murders and sentenced to death. Eventually, this was changed to life in prison because Robert was a minor at the time of the murders. Michael was also convicted and given life in prison. In their trials, the witnesses who were there the night of the murders were not questioned or brought into court. If the couple who had been in the shop before closing had been talked to, they probably could have verified that the men who were sitting at the table were not these skinny 15, 16-year-old boys. According to their recollection, it was two big guys dressed in black, but they weren't asked. The jury also didn't hear from Daryl Croft, the security guard who had been in the shop that night, and had also witnessed a different man acting strange. The defense was not allowed to mention any of the insane amount of false confessions in the case. They were not shown any of the 20 hours of footage of Michael's confession. Um, that was the whole reason that these men were on trial in the first place. They were, however, shown very graphic and very upsetting photos of the murder scene over and over, which was extremely traumatic for everyone. So the jurors decided then that there was enough evidence to put Robert and Michael in prison for life. Robert and Michael filed for appeals, claiming that Michael's confession had been coerced and that there wasn't enough evidence to convict them, which was true. And after spending 10 years in prison, Michael and Robert were released in 2009. Basically, the DA looked into Michael's confession and decided it was ridiculous and clearly coerced. And as this um, tape came forward of that officer holding a gun or not holding a gun to the back of Michael's head, they realized that this had been coerced and it was not handled properly at all. Um, so his confession was the only reason that... Robert had been convicted, so they were both released. If Michael's confession is not true, then the implications against Robert couldn't be true either. Uh, the prosecutors tried again to do a retrial and got DNA from all four of the men. Back in 1991, the DNA technology they were using was still very new, and they weren't really able to do anything with the incomplete DNA strand that they had. However, in 2008, they were able to use a new technology that used only the Y strand, and this basically just meant that the male part of the DNA would be that's shared by hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people who have the same family tree. So any like male cousins or brother or uncle or dad, whoever, um, would be connected to this Y strand. They tested this Y strand DNA against all four men's DNA and surprise, surprise, it didn't match the DNA found at the scene. Instead of doing the logical thing <laughs> again, and finally deciding that there was really no evidence to connect these men to the yogurt shop murders, the investigators were like, okay, well then, there had to have been a fifth person involved. You guys, come on. Luckily, the district attorney at the time, Rosemary Lemberg, was like, bark up a different tree. You're not taking anyone else to trial unless there is a positive DNA match. After this, the Austin PD uh, committed to testing hundreds of men who could possibly have some kind of a connection to the yogurt shop murders, and they never did get a positive match. Obviously, we want, we never want to put the wrong person or people in jail for something they didn't do. That doesn't help anybody. Putting someone behind bars just because you can get them to confess doesn't solve the case and it doesn't give the girls justice. I just feel horrible for the families and I can't even imagine the trauma that it would be giving them, like watching this all unfold. They think that they have someone convicted, then it gets overturned, then it goes cold again. And I just can't imagine going to sleep every night for what has now been 30 years, not knowing what happened to your loved ones. In my opinion, I think that's a big part of why the original detectives, Detective Jones and Detective Huckabee, made that pact amongst themselves to have an airtight 
case against whichever suspect they decided to try before they take it to trial. Because now the families of Jessica, Sarah, Amy, and Eliza had been through so many ups and downs with a conviction and then having it overturned. And the families of these men had to go through the whole ordeal. And two of them wasted a decade in jail for something they didn't do. There's a lot of really amazing police work being done in this case, but there's also been some really shady things that just destroyed people's lives and reopened a lot of wounds, and I hate that that's how it went. For a few years, there was no movement and no new updates on the case. However, in 2017, something big happened. A detective at the Austin Police Department, Jay Swan, found a lab that was doing extensive research in Y-strand DNA. According to the website for the University of Central Florida Center of Forensic Science, uh, they had over 29,000 samples for population research of this Y-strand DNA. This included samples from, quote, government, commercial, and academic resources throughout the United States. Um, and it said, quote, all forensic laboratories and institutions are invited to contribute. So the APD submitted their DNA, and not long after, they had a match found to the DNA found on Amy Ayer's body. When they contacted the lab, they found out that this DNA actually had been submitted by the FBI, and they were ecstatic. This was a major break, and they were finally going to get some answers for these families who had been waiting for justice for 26 years at this point. Yay. Only hold on. Not yay. Because the FBI would not, and still will not, give the identity of the person who provided this DNA. They said that legally they can't give up this information, which started a now almost five-year standoff between the FBI and the APD. I'm sorry, I really brought it up there and then brought it way, like, way back down. Um, essentially, the FBI said that there was a federal law made in 1994 that required officials to protect the identity of anonymous donors whose DNA was submitted to the Florida database for population research. Because this lab was not supposed to be a law enforcement forensic database, um, and now their website includes a disclaimer that says it cannot be used to identify a particular individual whose sample is in the database. All donors are anonymous and samples cannot be traced back to specific individuals. Basically, the APD and the FBI went back and forth with arguments of why or why not the donor should be shared with them. The APD argued that this was the only significant lead they'd gotten in over a decade. The FBI said that the list of suspects would be way too broad because it was the Y-strand. Again, it could be a thousand different people. Cousins, brothers, uncles, fifth cousin. Um, to which the APD was like, we don't really care. Because they knew it would be a big search after that, but they would at least have the family line and a place to start and figure out, you know, who was related to that match that lived in Austin in the 90s. Uh, the most recent article, the most recent article I could find was from February of 2020, and it said that the FBI had not budged, and most likely they won't. So, okay, look, on one hand, I get it, kind of, privacy concerns and all of that with DNA, but on the other hand, I'm pissed. Again, these families have been through enough, and to know that there's DNA just sitting there with a person tied to it, we have a match, and to know... It could either be the person who committed the murders or is related to the murderer that you just are not allowed to know and that the FBI is just like, sorry, we can't do anything. It's unimaginable torture. Y-strand DNA is becoming more and more popular when it comes to solving cold cases. That's a huge part of how they caught that piece of crap, Joseph D'Angelo, uh, the Golden State Killer. And I understand that there has to be protection so that law enforcement doesn't just have access to everyone's stuff. But I'm like, first of all, they already do. They already have access to all your stuff. They can get access to anything. But also, I'm sorry, but once you commit a murder, your privacy means nothing to me. Whenever that argument's made, I always think of that part on Liar Liar. Go with me. <laughs> Talking about the 90s. Liar Liar, 
uh, with Jim Carrey. And his character has a client who keeps getting arrested and he walks into his office one day and he's like super stressed out. And his, um, his assistant is like, your client's on the phone and he needs your legal advice. And then Jim Carrey is so frustrated. He just takes the phone and yells into the receiver, quit breaking the law, asshole. Do you remember that part? If you haven't ever seen Liar Liar, I need you to go and watch it immediately. Anyways, whenever this whole thing comes up about murderers complaining that their rights are being violated by DNA collection, that's how I feel. All that to say, Bottom line, the FBI will not give that super helpful, very huge, important piece of information, so the case is cold yet again. We are coming up on 30 years next week, and there are no answers. It's just completely stuck, and I just, it breaks my heart. It, it really does. These cases that go cold for decades like this, I don't know how families ever move on. I don't know how ever they ever have any kind of, like, sense of peace, and I just hope I really, really hope that maybe someday that law can be changed or that someone else submits DNA, that they are able to use something to get answers for these girls. Um, I'm going to leave you with that. Highly recommend checking out the book, uh, Who Killed These Girls by Beverly Lowry. It's beautifully written and gives way more detail than I could give in an hour-long episode. Um, so I would highly, highly recommend checking that out. The Audible book is really good if you like audiobooks. Not sponsored. Maybe someday. Speaking of sponsors, though... Make sure you check out HydroJug. Don't forget, use my discount code. Go to the website. It's going to be great. And then we can all stay hydrated together. I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. I hope you liked this episode. Make sure you follow me on social media at TGI Crime Day. And send me your spooky hometown stories, uh, your ghost stories, your hometown murders, the case that got you obsessed with true crime. I want to know it all, as long as it's true crime related-ish. I want to know. Uh, my email is TGICrimeDay at gmail.com. Thank you again for being here, and I will talk to you very soon, hopefully without the bronchitis next time. Bye!